So you might like to, if you have a Bible there, you might like to have, have it open to Psalm 89 because we'll be referring to it throughout the, the service. When we, when we read a psalm, uh, sometimes we skip over the ascription at the beginning of the psalm and you'll see uh, just before verse 1, we'll see that this psalm is a mascul of Ethan the Ezraite. You could call that verse 0, I guess. We're not exactly sure what the word mascul means except that it's related to the word to instruct or to impart wisdom. The thought that this psalm is especially designed to give wisdom is borne out by the fact that Ethan the Ezraite, who wrote this psalm, was someone who was considered extremely wise. Um, as we'll see on the next screen. Thanks, Michael. Sorry, I should have teed him up for this. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, and Heman, Calcol, and Dada, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. So who was Ethan the Ezraite? Obviously a contemporary, or maybe uh, he lived before the time of Solomon, uh, maybe he was an advisor to King David. Maybe he was a Levite musician who was commissioned to write this psalm. But whoever he was, we can say that this psalm fits this category of wisdom, wisdom literature. The same category as the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon and Job. Now all of these books, the wisdom books in the Old Testament, wrestle with the realities of life, including suffering and death and many uh, other realities that we might struggle to comprehend as we live our life as human beings under the sun, as the writer of Ecclesiastes puts it. Now something that Old Testament wisdom literature does often is that it poses questions and calls on us to ponder them without necessarily giving us nice, watertight, neat answers. And by doing so, we're forced to turn to God, our infinitely wise creator, to trust him that he is working out all things together for good. In his goodness sometimes, though, he does give us answers to the questions that he poses. There are some things that seem a contradiction in life, even in the scriptures, but they find their resolution, they find the answer to the questions they pose in the cross of Jesus Christ. And one of these things that we uh, might feel like is a contradiction that we actually looked at at the Bible study group a few weeks ago is the dilemma of the existence of sin in the world. We ask the question, if God is both sovereign and good, why did he allow sin to enter creation? And with it, the suffering that followed. The dilemma becomes greater when we realise that if God is truly sovereign, which means nothing happens outside his will, 
then sin wasn't simply allowed, it was actually ordained by God. For God in his sovereignty to allow something and to ordain something really is essentially the same thing. Now the problem with this from our perspective is that it seems inconsistent, it seems a contradiction for a good God to decide that sin and evil should ravage his good creation and human beings. But it's in the cross that we see that what appears to be a contradiction is actually complementary truths. Over and above and before any plan to allow sin was the plan of the Father to send the the Son to be the Saviour of the world by dying to redeem sinners like you and me. The goal of this plan was that God would be praised not only for his glory, but for his glorious grace. So because of the Son's obedience, even to the death of a cross, every creature will bow before him and his grace will be magnified even more than if there had been no sin and therefore no cross. Just one example of how the cross brings a resolution to the contradictions of life. Well, this psalm also presents us with what appears to be a contradiction. The first major section, verses 1 to 37, speak of the Lord's covenant with David and his faithfulness. But then the second major section, verses 38 to 51, speak of him rejecting his anointed and renouncing the covenant. So what's going on here? The psalm starts on a very positive note, but then, like Psalm 88, which we saw last week in the the sermon, it ends on a very negative note, without any resolution. If you're looking at it now, you're saying, well, what about verse 52? Well, verse 52 wasn't actually an original part of the psalm. It's actually just a verse that is the conclusion to this section of the whole book of Psalms. Well, the resolution to this apparent contradiction is found in the cross, which we'll look at in a little while. But first, let's look at how the Lord's covenant faithfulness is unpacked. Verses 1 to 4 are an introduction. It gives us the main themes of this Psalm. We see in, in the verse 1 the goal of the psalm, that all generations would know the faithfulness and steadfast love of the Lord. That's something that Ethan the Ezraite has achieved. For three and a half thousand years, this psalm has been read and sung and meditated on by God's people. Then verses 2 and 3 give us a paradigm, a model for Conversation between human beings and God. What is it that we are to say when we address God? Well, we see in verse 2, we are to speak in praise and honour of his faithfulness, to worship him with our mouths by declaring his steadfast love. And what is it that God says to human beings? Well, he speaks of his covenant love expressed here in the covenant with David. It contained the promise that his offspring would uh, establish the throne forever. 
Now it wasn't uncommon for ancient kings to make pacts or covenants with their gods in return for the king's pledge of allegiance and worship and offering of sacrifices, sometimes human sacrifice. The gods, they hoped, would protect the king and help him win his battles. The Lord's covenant with David and Israel, though, is quite different. It's not a quid pro quo arrangement. Verse 3, notice, is not a pledge of what the man, what the king will do, but a statement of what the Lord has done and will do. And instead, it's the Lord himself who makes a pledge of allegiance to David and his offspring. Don't ever think that the Lord's faithfulness to you is dependent on your commitment to him. Any commitment you have to him must flow from the knowledge of his steadfast love and faithfulness to you. Well, what qualifies this Yahweh, this Lord, to make such a bold promise, to guarantee it so that there can be no doubt that he'll keep it? Well, that's what we see in the next section, verses 5 to 18. Firstly, we see that he is unique among the gods. Along with this ancient pagan idea that each nation and its kings had their particular gods, was also this idea that all these various gods lived up in the heavens and they related to each other much as human beings do. Uh, you may be familiar, more familiar with that concept from the Greek mythology, but that was just one example of the ancient view of God and gods. They would gather for assemblies these gods and negotiate their relationships with each other. They would marry one another and have children. They would negotiate who has control over which part of the earth and which nations. They'd fight and squabble amongst themselves. Now these verses pick up on this type of language that the nations used. In verse 5, the assembly of the holy ones is a reference to that idea. But they tell us something different to what the nations thought. Verse 6 says, Who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? The Lord is not merely just one God among many. He is over all the heavenly beings. In fact, they are his creatures, if they even exist at all. We see from other passages in the Bible, for example, Job chapter 1, where uh, we're told the sons of God presented themselves before the Lord and Satan himself was among them. We see in Revelation 4 the throne of God and around the throne are 24 thrones with elders and living creatures and angels, all these heavenly spiritual beings. All these spiritual beings, whether good or evil, are created by God and ultimately they serve his purpose in the world, not their own. So he's 
qualified to make this kind of promise because he's unique among, above, over all the so-called gods. Secondly, he's the creator and ruler of all things. This is speaking of the Lord as the creator. Uh, Rahab there is not the woman from Jericho, uh, although the, the consonants in the Hebrew are the same. It's a different word. It's a word that means strong or strong one. It's probably a reference to the great sea creatures, the whales and so on. And then Tabor and Hermon are mountains who by their grandeur declare the greatness and the power of the Lord. So simply because God is the creator of heaven and earth, he is sovereign over all and he determines the, the course of history. He determines the, uh, the beginning and the end of all creation. Thirdly, he's qualified to make this kind of promise because of his revealed character. that phrase there, the light of your face. Uh, early this, this year we looked at the uh, idea of God's presence among us and saw that this term, the face of God, speaks of his presence. So this is people who are in the presence of God who have had his uh, righteous character and nature revealed to them. He's shown himself in all that he's done to be righteous and just. The one true God who can always be trusted to do what's right. He's passionate about seeking justice for his people. And then verses 18 to 37 flesh out the nature of this covenant with David. Also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not have with me, 
and not walk according to my rules. If they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with a rod and the iniquity of his tracks. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my days. Once for all, I swore by my holiness, I will not lie today. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. So notice there verses 30 to 34. Here's the nature of the covenant. Even if David's successors are unfaithful, the Lord will remain faithful to his word. There'll, there'll be judgment, there'll be punishment for those who break his commands, but the covenant will never be annulled. He's not a God who says one thing and then does another. Remember, his faithfulness doesn't depend on our commitment, didn't depend on the king's commitment. The kings to follow would be judged for their unfaithfulness, but their unfaithfulness would not annul the Lord's faithfulness to his promises. So verses 38 to 45, in fact the rest of the psalm, stand in stark contrast to that first part of this psalm. The other thing we might tend to do when reading the psalms is we read the nice bits and then we skip over the not so nice bits. And when I just did a quick Google search of um, Psalm 89, came across a number of commentaries and devotionals and YouTube clips on Psalm 89, but they all just focus on the first half, not this second half. We don't like to read negative things like this, do we, in the scriptures in particular. And maybe there's a little bit of a culture today where we, we actually used to hearing the Bible in little sound bites, little snippets. We have quotes on our motivational posters and our tea towels and the front of our Bible covers. and um, Or maybe we have the little guide in our Bible that says where to find help when, feeling sad, feeling lonely, feeling depressed. And it takes us to a nice pick-me-up little quote, little verse. Uh, if we're used to having the Bible given to us in those little quotes, we are, we're only going to hear the positives, aren't we? And we actually uh, miss out on a large part of the scriptures that speak of the harsh realities of life under the sun. In verse 37, we saw the covenant compared to the moon, a faithful witness in the skies. But now... The moon has gone dark. On January 11 this year, there will be a penumbral eclipse of the moon in which the full moon will grow dim as it enters the outer edge, the penumbra of the Earth's shadow. But we need to wait till May the 26th, 2021 for a total eclipse to happen. And when it does the moon will go dark and then at the full, whatever the word is, when it's fully covered, it'll actually go red 
as the light of the sun is blocked and it's only the red light that's filtered through the Earth's atmosphere that reaches the moon. This is known as a blood moon. Well, these verses are a total eclipse of the covenant. Only darkness, only the red blood of wrath and judgment are visible. Everything about the promises to David are repudiated. Instead of steadfast love, there's wrath. Instead of his horn being made strong, his crown is thrown to the ground. Instead of crushing his foes, he is crushed by his foes. So here's the apparent contradiction of the psalm. How could the Lord swear his commitment to the covenant in verse 34 only to renounce it? Just left on its own, without any context or background, there could be only two ways that we could read this. Firstly, verses 1 to 37 are a lie. We'd have to conclude that the Lord hasn't kept his word and his promises are empty. That while he claims to be sovereign, he's not actually able to control the destiny of his people. Or even worse, he is sovereign and he has deliberately lied and deceived the people into believing he's good when he's not. Notice that the bad things that have happened to the king have been done to the Lord. You have renounced the covenant, you have defiled his crown, you have breached all his walls, you have exalted the right hand of his foes, you have cut short the days of his youth. In this case we can only conclude that Yahweh, the Lord, is no different to all the other gods, angry, fickle, self-interested, malicious towards human beings, taking delight in tricking them into trusting him only to turn around and enslave them or destroy them. Well, that's one possible conclusion. If we have no other reference point, no other background or understanding. Well, secondly, we might conclude that human beings have got things terribly wrong. They thought it was the Lord making these promises when it wasn't really. In this case, only verses 1 to 37 are just the wishful imagination of misguided people who got their hopes up only to be bitterly disappointed when things didn't work out. We have the next slide up. Thanks, Michael. You may have heard of the recent events in an American megachurch, where else but America, in which the two-year-old daughter of a couple in leadership died suddenly. The couple called their church together for a round-the-clock prayer and worship vigil, believing that God would resurrect their daughter. They believed they had a biblical precedent. Jesus raised the dead. Jesus sent out his apostles to heal the sick and raise the dead. Well, seven days later, their little girl still lay in the morgue and they made plans for a funeral. The problem with this is not only will this, I think, magnify the parents' grief as their firm belief that God would bring their daughter back 
has come to nothing. But also that they and a whole church and many thousands around the world who have been following this uh, process have been believing and conveying something about God that's not true. God never promised that he would resurrect our family members when they die. Rather, he promises deep comfort for us when they do die. And he assures us of a hope in the promise of the resurrection when Jesus returns. Dear Olive will be resurrected, but not now. So sadly, people have been expecting God to do something that he hasn't done. He never promised to do. Now, is that, is that what's happening here in Psalm 89? Is Ethan the Ezraite not wise after all, but actually a fool, forgiving himself and the people a false hope? Well, without any other reference point, all we have are these two dead ends, that God is not who he says he is, or he's not who we believe he is. Well, gladly, though, we do have another reference point which saves us from those two hopeless conclusions, the cross of Christ. As we heard those words being read, did it strike you that all of those things that could be, that were said of this king could also have been said of Christ on the road to the cross? In fact, the word anointed in verse 38 is the Hebrew Messiah. These verses are the description not of someone suffering randomly for no reason. They're the description of a king, of a Messiah, the Messiah suffering for a specific purpose. The verses 38 to 45 describe the significance of Jesus' suffering. Everything that took place from the point of his prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane were the marks of a man abandoned by God. Especially the abandonment of his friends, his arrest and his mocking at the hands of the Gentiles, their their parody of him by dressing him in a robe and putting a reed in his hand and a crown of thorns on his head and the sign on his cross, King of the Jews. It was all just a big parody of this man who thinks he is the King, the Messiah. This is the suffering servant that Isaiah speaks of. We can have it up there, thanks, Michael. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Remember how you got my kindness. For what 
These are the, the king's own words, crying out from the depths of his suffering. It's really just another way of saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Whatever historical king it was whose situation gave rise to the writing of this psalm, their suffering and their words point us to the suffering of Jesus. A suffering in which he bore our sin and shame. A suffering that not only has purpose in that it is our redemption, but it transforms all human suffering to have purpose. Because all who suffer in Christ, all of our suffering, no matter how great, no matter how small, is used by the Father to make us more like Jesus. And it will ultimately bear fruit, as it did for Jesus in resurrection to new life. So, knowing all this then transforms how we read the final three verses. Lord, where is the steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness is for today? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many things with which your enemies mock. O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your enemies. So verse 49 is not an accusation that the Lord has lied or gone back on his promise or is no longer loving. It's a cry from the depths of suffering based on the fact that God's faithful and loving character proven time and time again in the past and so he's able to be trusted for the future. Because he has shown himself in steadfast love and faithfulness, we can come to him even when things look like the blackest of nights and appeal to his character. We can call on him to remember our situation because we know this one thing. As his own son hung, abandoned and despised in deep grief and agony on the cross, the father remembered him. And Jesus was able to pray as he breathed his last, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Through faith in him we also may know this assurance that goes beyond the grave. And if if our assurance goes beyond the grave, surely that assurance will go beyond December 31st and into the new year. We can entrust ourselves to him and say, Father, for this year ahead, into your hands I commit my spirit. Psalm 89 speaks to us not only of the Gospel, that in the suffering of the Messiah King we have through faith forgiveness and reconciliation with the Father. It also speaks to us in various ways as we come to the end of a year and look forward to another year to come. Firstly, 
It's good to look back and remember the Lord's faithfulness and love towards us, both as individuals, as families and as a church. Let's remember the scriptural promises that he's kept, as well as the unexpected ways that he's blessed us. One thing that the Father promises is to bring the church to maturity in Christ. That certainly doesn't mean that we will become the perfect church that gets everything right. Ephesians 4 describes the church and maturity in these terms. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So we need to look back and recall how the Spirit has been at work in us through the Word in this way. And we need to trust as a church that he'll continue to do that work in the year ahead. Secondly, we can have the assurance that whatever we may face in the year ahead, the Lord's faithfulness and love will remain constant. One thing that's guaranteed, even promised, is that in this life, in this world, we will face trials and suffering. For some, it may be small. For others, like a friend of mine whose 11-year-old daughter is dying of cancer, they weren't even sure if she would see Christmas For others, our suffering may be more than we feel we can bear, like the writer of Psalm 89. But this psalm and this scripture as a whole give us the assurance that all suffering is used by the Father to accomplish his good purpose in the world and in us. And none of us will be in vain, no matter how great, no matter how tiny you feel your suffering is. It's all used by the Father for his good purpose. So we don't know whether the year ahead will be a joyful one or a sorrowful one, but he knows and it's all in his hands. So let's entrust ourselves, let us commit our spirits into his hands for whatever this year holds. Thirdly, this psalm actually calls us to be people who are saturated in the word. Ethan the Ezraite wrote this psalm because he knew of the word of the Lord's covenant promises to David. Someone told him, maybe it was David himself, maybe he, he read it, whatever it was, he had heard that word from the Lord of the promise. He knew the word of the creation story and he reflects on it as he records the Lord's dealing in creation. He knows the story of Israel because he reflects on 
the history of Israel. He knew the word in which the Lord had revealed his righteous, just, good character. And it was this knowledge of the word that meant he became known as one of the wisest men recorded in scripture. His wisdom, like that of Solomon, wasn't from himself but from the Lord. Wisdom comes as we hear him speak in his word and we receive it by faith and in the power of the spirit we step out and obey it. As we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's true wisdom, wanting the Lord's will to be done in our lives and on this earth. As a church and as individuals, we need to continue to be digging into God's word, to be committed to reading, hearing, meditating on, speaking the word to ourselves and to each other. And as we do, we'll find that the gift of faith will enable us to call on the Lord as the psalm does. Retelling his loving kindness and having the confidence that he will remember us whenever we ask. And finally, we must never take our eyes off Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. As we've seen, this psalm points not primarily to ourselves and our own troubles, but to Jesus who suffered for us and the power of his cross and resurrection is still at work today in our lives. The other day I was speaking to a man who's in his 90s who said in his own words, I'm much closer now to the permanently horizontal position He was a bit upset a while ago because he went to hospital but then he came out again. He was wanting to go home. But he quoted to me Colossians 1.13 He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. And then he said, that's mine. You can't take that away from me. That is my inheritance. No one will take it away from me. This man has his eyes fixed on Jesus. This good news of the gospel of the cross of Jesus still has power to save. It can save a man in his 90s and it can save us and it can keep us and anyone with whom we're bold enough to share it. So let's pray as we enter a new year that we will be filled with his word, that we will love his word and that our mouths will be open to declare his praises uh, to friends, family, neighbours and the nations.